This is Evermore Poe, the turbulent youth of Edgar Allan Poe. Chapter 25 The mood was bittersweet on the final day in the existence of John H. Clark's English and Classical Academy for Boys. And while there was no real lesson plan, Headmaster Clark took the opportunity to inspire and petrify. Gentlemen, we have read many classic works of literature over the year. Each tells a story, but not every story can be found in a book. So, as you go forward in life, gentlemen, I ask that you pay close attention to the world all around you. Stories are everywhere. I should like to leave you with one that has quite affected me over the years. I have always felt it inappropriate to share with my students because of its graphic nature. However, this being my very last day, I no longer see any harm as I am no longer your instructor, and many of you are already off into the world. In fact, some of the ill-fated souls in this tragic tale were younger than you are now. Curious looks were shared around the room. Clark knew he was already grabbing their attention. Some years ago, as I was returning from a trip to Europe, on board was the most unusual passenger. He wore a gentleman's suit and walked with a very fine ivory cane, but his skin was extremely weathered, as though he had known a very harsh life. And then there was his disposition. Day after day, I spotted him on deck, staring out into the sea. So curious was I that one day I struck up a conversation. He introduced himself as Officer Owen Chase, a veteran of the sea and former first mate. He was returning home to Nantucket after having sold his memoirs to a publishing house in London. Naturally, I asked him about his manuscript, which was about his experience on board the doomed whaling vessel Essex. Now all of the students were listening. The tragedy of the Essex was already legend as one of the greatest maritime disasters in the young history of America. But because some reports included accounts of infighting, mutiny, and cannibalism, the story was deemed inappropriate to discuss in polite society and therefore shrouded in mystery. What struck me most were the man's piercing blue eyes that were filled with the most profound sadness, the headmaster continued. We spoke at length. I told Officer Chase that I was a headmaster at an American academy for boys and that I should very much like to read his work. I gave him my card, and within a month's time, his publisher was kind enough to offer me a copy of his manuscript. The story goes that upon the day the Essex set sail, Officer Chase looked around at the freshman crew and had a terrible premonition. He couldn't explain it, but somehow he knew most of them were marked to die at sea. Now, I probably don't have to tell you that sailors are a superstitious bunch. They have been since the days of Odysseus. So when the Essex hit a squall two days into their journey, the veterans on board took it as an omen and asked to turn back. Does this sound like anything you've read this year, gentlemen? Creed raised his hand. It sounds like the rhyme of the ancient mariner, sir. Precisely, Mr. Thomas. It is highly likely that Coldridge's story had some basis in truth. It is also quite plausible that Officer Chase's story may inspire future writers with his compelling tale. Back to our story, then. 
The storm nearly sank the Essex right then and there. And while they were all spared, they lost one of their whaling boats. Yes, Mr. Howard, you had a question? Is it true, sir, that the smaller whaling boats served as lifeboats? Indeed, Mr. Howard. Unfortunately, the captain had come about his position through favors curried by his powerful family and had little to no prior experience at the helm. So rather than stop along the coast for a replacement boat, he ordered the crew to carry on. They had rounded Cape Horn and were deep into the Pacific Ocean when they came under attack. I should now like to read to you a portion of Officer Chase's manuscript. Each boy was on the edge of his seat as the headmaster began. <clears throat> I observed a very long spermacelli whale, as well as I could judge, about 85 feet in length. He broke water about 20 rods off our weather bow and was lying quietly with his head in a direction for the ship. He spouted two or three times and then disappeared. In less than two or three seconds, he came up again, about the length of the ship off, and made directly for us at the rate of about three knots. The ship was then going with about the same velocity. His appearance and attitude gave us, at first, no alarm, but while I stood watching his movements and observing him but a ship length away, coming down for us with great celerity, I involuntarily ordered the boy at the helm to put it up hard, intending to sheer off and avoid him. The words were scarcely out of my mouth before he came down upon us with full speed and struck the ship with his head just forward of the fore cabins. He gave us such an appalling and tremendous jar as nearly threw us all on our faces. The ship brought up as suddenly and as violently as if she had struck a rock and trembled for a few seconds like a leaf. We looked at each other with perfect amazement, deprived almost of the power of speech. Many minutes elapsed before we were able to realize the dreadful accident, during which time he passed under the ship, grazing her keel as he went along, came up underside of her to leeward, and lay on the top of the water, apparently stunned with the violence of the blow. For the space of a minute, he then suddenly started off in a direction to leeward, after a few moments of reflection and recovering, in some measure, from the sudden consternation that he had seized us, I, of course, concluded he had stove a hole in the ship and that it would be necessary to see the pumps going. Accordingly, they were rigged, but had not been in operation more than one minute. Before I perceived the head of the ship to be gradually settling down in the water, I then ordered the signal to be set for the other boats, which scarcely had I dispatched, before I again discovered the whale, apparently in convulsions, on top of the water, about 100 rods to leeward. He was enveloped in the foam of the sea. His violent thrashing about in the water had created around him, and I could distantly see him smite his jaws together, as if distracted with rage and fury. He remained a short time in that situation, and then started off with great velocity across the bows of the ship to windward. By this time, the ship had settled down a considerable distance in the water, and I gave her up as lost. I, however, ordered the pumps to be kept constantly going and endeavored to collect my thoughts for the occasion. I turned to the boats, two of which we then had with the ship, with an intention of clearing them away and getting all things ready to embark on them if there should be no other recourse left. While my attention was thus engaged for a moment, I was aroused with the cry of a man at the hatchway. 
Here he is. He is making for us again. I turned around and saw him, about one hundred rods directly ahead of us, coming down apparently with twice his ordinary speed, and to me at the moment it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect. The surf flew in all directions about him, and his course towards us was marked by a white foam of a rod in width. His head was about half out of water, and in that way he came upon us again and struck the ship. I was in hopes, when I decreed him making for us, that by a dexterous movement of putting the ship away immediately, I should be able to cross the line of his approach before he could get up to us, and thus avoid what I knew. If he should strike us once again, would prove our inevitable destruction. I bawled out to the helmsman, Hard up! But she had not fallen off more than a point before we took the second shock. I should judge the speed of the ship to have been, at this time, about three knots, and that of the whale about six. He struck her to the windward, and completely stove in her brows. He passed under the whale ship, went off to leeward, and we saw no more of him. Clark paced around the room. It was time to up the ante. We were more than a thousand miles from the nearest island, and with nothing but a light open boat as the resource of safety for myself and companions. By the time we had got the boat to the waist, the ship had filled with water and was going down on her beam ends. We shoved our boat as quickly as possible from the plant shear into the water, all hands jumping in her at the same time, and launched off clear of the ship. We were scarcely two boat lengths distance from her, when she fell over to windward and settled down in the water. Now, gentlemen, they numbered twenty souls in the three remaining boats. Back to our story. Amazement and despair now wholly took possession of us. We contemplated the frightful situation the ship lay in and thought with horror upon the sudden and dreadful calamity that had overtaken us. We looked upon each other as if to gather some interchange of sentiments, but every countenance was marked with the paleness of despair. Not a word was spoken for several minutes by any of us. All appeared to be bound in a spell of stupid consternation. Clark basked in the attention his final story commanded. The remaining boats tried to stay together, but were split up in a storm. In both parties, men perished, their bodies buried at sea. When the next man died in Officer Chase's boat, it was decided instead of committing the body to the water, they would prepare for the custom of the sea. The boys looked around. They knew this meant cannibalism. But Officer Chase and the inhabitants of his boat didn't have the worst of it. And I quote, On the 14th, the whole stock of provisions belonging to the second mate's boat was entirely exhausted, and on the 25th day, Lawson Thomas died and was eaten by his starving companions. On the 21st, the captain and his crew were in the like dreadful situation with respect to their provisions, and on the 23rd, Charles Sorter died out of the same boat, and his body, too, was shared for food between the crews of both boats. On the 27th, another, Isaac Shepard, died in the third boat, and on the 28th, another man named Samuel Reed died out of the captain's boat. The bodies of these men constituted their only food until it lasted, and on the 29th, owing to the darkness of the night and want and sufficient power to manage their boats, those of the captain and second mate separated. 
on the 1st of February, having consumed the last morsel, the captain and the three other men that remained with him were reduced to the necessity of casting lots. End quote. Mr. Howard, did you have a question? Uh, yes, sir. Casting lots, doesn't that mean that they choose who's going to be murdered to be eaten? Indeed, young man, it does. May I finish my story? Uh, yes, sir. Quote, it fell upon Owen Coffin to die, who, with great fortitude and resignation, submitted to his fate. They drew lots to see who should shoot him. He placed himself firmly to receive his death and was immediately shot by Charles Ramsdale, whose hard fortune it was to become his executioner. On the 11th, Brazilla Ray died, and on these two bodies, the captain and Charles Ramsdale, the only two that were then left, subsided until the morning of the 23rd, when they fell in with the ship Dauphin and were saved from the sea. Clark finished his story. In the end, boys, the crew of the Essex had been on the high seas for more than 90 days. They were eight survivors of the original 21. The room was still. Clark relished the tension before removing his bifocals and addressing the class one final time. Gentlemen, the moral of this story is, you cannot guarantee what tomorrow will bring. It may be calm waters or it may be a storm on the sea. One thing is for sure, life will throw you time and again. It is my heartiest wish that each and every one of you has a wonderful and fulfilling life. Take nothing for granted, gentlemen. Cherish these days. Thank you all for being such stellar students. It has been my unique honor to instruct you. I am forever grateful to you all. The class erupted in applause. A single voice was audible over all. Tom Ellis cupped his hands and yelled, Sir, we have something for you too, sir. Eddie took his cue and walked to the podium. Headmaster Clark, if I may still call you that, you, sir, are not the only one who wishes to share reflections today. For the next few moments, Eddie read his speech, much to the delight of the boys in the room, and Headmaster Clark, too. With a unique style, the indelible mark you have made on us all no doubt inspires each and every one of us in the years to come. We thank you, Headmaster Clark, for your generosity, integrity, and knowledge. Much like the literature you so adore, you, sir, are a classic. Eddie finished his closing words and looked to the headmaster once more. Eddie noticed a tear underneath the man's bifocals. It was clear he had made his mark. Evermore Poe is the historical account of a teenaged Edgar Allan Poe. If you'd like to learn more about Eddie's devolution to become the master of the macabre, please don't forget to follow and share this podcast. Evermore Poe was researched, written, produced, and edited by yours truly, journalist Chris Kosach. I began my research more than a decade ago using vetted journalistic methods with corroborated fact-checking from respected sources including the Library of Congress, periodicals obtained from multiple Poe museums, notable scholars, and the National Archives, among other collections, strung together in a narrative style. In other words, my story is mostly true. Our music today is from Esther Abrami. It should be noted that some of the characters in Evermore Poe are composites of real people, including servants and slaves who lived in the Allen home at the time of our story. Please note, while Evermore Poe is based on fact, it should not be confused with the historic record. For that, I hope you will go down your own rabbit hole to research one of the most thrilling 
American authors of all time. Our story continues again next time on Evermore Poe. Until then, I'm Chris Kosach. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Chris Kosach. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Evermore Poe. This one is standalone, so if you wouldn't mind sharing it with your friends just in time for Halloween, it's our gift to get you in the mood for Halloween. And now for the facts in the case of Mr. Poe with this chapter. First of all, Edgar Allan Poe did go to John Clark's Academy for Boys on the Hill. They called it the Academy on the Hill. But then again, Eddie went to a lot of prep schools. If you look it up, he he arguably got kicked out of a few. (laughs) Nevertheless, Eddie did go to a number of prep schools. The other thing I wanted to mention in this standalone episode is that what Clark reads from is, in fact, verbatim the words of Officer Chase from the sinking of the Essex. People did, unfortunately, cash in on their experience having been on that tragic whale ship. The sinking of the Essex would have happened in 1820, which is just two years before the telling of our story. And so Eddie definitely would have been reading headlines about this horrible tragedy at sea, which did, in fact, include choosing lots, which is code for cannibalism. It was the biggest news story at the time. And if that story sounded familiar to you, it's probably because it is believed to be the basis of Poe's only novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. It was also the basis for, you guessed it, Moby Dick. And the book and the movie, In the Heart of the Sea, The Heart of the Sea came out just a few years ago. So with that, hope you'll listen to the next chapter of Evermore Poe. Thanks for listening. 